That's right. I think there's a lot of optionality for gold and silver, and that's exactly what I like the most about that. I think if there was ever a time for you to be taking risk in the space, I think the time is today. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with Kevin Smith and Tavi Costa of Crescat Capital. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Kevin and Tavi, in which they explain why they think today's spiking inflation will drive a massive rotation of capital out of today's popular sectors and into hard assets, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Kevin, Tavi, and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. Also, please just take a moment to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Doing so is easy and it really does help this channel reach a lot more viewers. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with the chief investors at Crescent Capital. Most recent research letter, you guys said that precious metals are, quote, ripe for a major breakout. Uh, I'm assuming you're probably going to say some of the same things as Kevin, but any other reasons why you would add to why you think specifically precious metals have such a bright future ahead of them? I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it starts with the cyclicality of the industry by looking at the fundamentals. Uh, you've never seen uh, a, a, a peak in this market at very cheap valuations like we're seeing right now. The, from a free cash flow perspective, these companies have never been so cheap. I think it starts from there. I mean, it's it's uh, not only from a margins uh, standpoint as well. Those companies are making money like never before. Uh, the other part of it that really attracts us is just looking at the cyclicality of the dilution of capital. Uh, when we think about the issuance of debt in the space, we're seeing the largest repayments of debt in history of the miners, at least the history of the data, uh, which it goes uh, goes uh, as far as over thirty years, and so. Looking at that, uh, usually compared with 2011, for instance, uh, we see uh, you know leverage actually companies leveraging up significantly uh, prior to the very uh, peak of that of that market. And this time, we're seeing the largest repayment. The same happens with the equity issuance. Equity issuance is at multi-year lows. So there's a, quite a lot of signs from the fundamental side. And we think about some other other point that is important here, which has to do with the M&As. Uh, we have not seen a significant amount of mergers and acquisitions in the space uh, like we saw back in 2011. Uh, there's a good chart that we show that, and it's at the very beginning. We're starting to see that heating up. Uh, usually, uh, you know, I would say that the miners are very gun shy uh, when it comes to spending capital. Uh, we talked to some of those uh, major companies, and they were they're, they just don't want to spend the money into uh, into uh, projects that are not delivering free cash flow just yet. And so it's uh, to Kevin's point earlier about the underinvestments in the space, and not only in precious metals, but the overall commodities, uh, I would say related industries. Uh, this is this is a very big problem. I think uh, the COVID situation really accelerated a lot of the supply problems, but inevitably we're going to go that way. The the shortage of raw materials, given the fact the capex cycles have been in a declining trend for over decades, 
not only on farming, but energy. And uh, you looked at base metals and precious metals. Um, we, we happen to be more on the niche side of precious metals because precious metals also look cheap relative to uh, what we're seeing in other commodities. It's, it's not only commodities are cheap relative to equities. For instance, the commodities to equity ratio is at a 50-year low. Uh, but then when you look at precious metals relative to commodities, they're also at multi-year lows. And so uh, we think that monetary metals will truly benefit from this monetary and fiscal disorder that we're seeing right now. Uh, and look, those companies are, I don't think there is a, a more contrarian play than, than buying gold and silver in the ground today. I think very few smart uh, money or investors or capital allocators have been navigating the exploration and development space of this industry. And so we thought, well, let's build a business behind this. We finance over 90 deals in the space. Uh, we think there's so much value there to be found uh, because of the inefficiencies given the fact that no one is participating in those markets. And so uh, I think that uh, allowing us to partner with the geologist, uh, which is the top geologist in the space, Quinton Henney, uh, it really gives us this, uh, this edge over, I would say, a lot of other investors in regarding to, uh, to finding those opportunities. So we're really looking forward to uh, this uh, as I think it's one of the, the biggest opportunities as far as uh, I would say my career. I, I can speak for mine at least. I would say Kevin as well. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's very uh, exciting what's going on. It feels like you're holding... Uh, you know, winning lottery tickets and the market is just not rewarding that accordingly. It's a true deep value opportunity in our opinion. All right, great. Um, so I'm going to use an analogy here. You tell me if you think it's accurate, but I, I sort of think of like the tip of a bullwhip where you're saying there's going to be this sort of repricing in commodities during this great rotation, right? Where they've been out of favor and suddenly a bunch of capital is going to come in there. They're going to, they're going to move quickly. Um, but just like the tip of the whip moves faster than the rest of the whip, right? That's what breaks the sound barrier and makes the crack. Sort of sounds like you think that precious metals are there at the tip of that move. They're the ones that are going to be moving the farthest, the fastest as that repricing happens. I see you nodding here, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that, is that more or less accurate? No, that's right. I think there's a lot of optionality for gold and silver, and that's exactly what I like the most about that. I think if there was ever a time for you to be taking risk in the space, I think that time is today. Your question before was, uh, you know, regarding why tangible assets today. And it has to do with the lack of alternatives of investments that yield more than inflation. When you have an environment like this, it drives you to tangible assets. And so those companies have been, you know, uh, bleeding capital for a real long time. And this is the first time that because of this corporate behavior that's been forced by investors, uh, forcing those management, uh, ma the management of those companies to really be uh, much more conservative with their capital is is forcing not only a lack of exploration and in, in budget and exploration in general, uh, development of mines, uh, spending in general in regards to new projects. Uh, and so all those issues are going to be creating implications for the supply curve of gold and silver. And on top of it, we have this uh, supply cliff. Kevin has a really good chart on this showing the supply cliff of gold of the top 20 or top 10 uh, major companies in space. And what we find there is that in the next uh, 10 years or so, we're going to see, or five years, we're going to see a major decline of those reserves that are going to be depleted uh, due to production. And so when are they going to be looking for new projects to replenish that production pipeline is going to be the key. So when you're seeing a fundamental, the optionality comes from, number one, 
the macro thesis. The macro thesis for gold is probably as strong as it has ever been before, and that can drive a lot of the liquidity to the space. The second part is the major companies becoming more profitable. About 73% of the companies, the top 50 miners today, are profitable. And so the more the profitability drives the improvement of the balance sheets of those companies, we may see liquidity towards uh, the development developer and exploration companies in, in this industry. And so that's the second form. And you know, even in a deflationary environment or inflationary environment, gold can perform very well, which is the optionality for the asset is, is really what attract us. I think the only way you could be wrong here, in our opinion, is uh, if we're going to be uh, the next uh, one, you know, three years or so, we're going to see organic growth in the economy. Or in other words, uh, no need for further monetary and fiscal stimulus to drive growth. That's on our view. I think that when you reach the levels that we have reached as far as uh, the debt imbalances and valuations in equity markets and risky assets, those tend to uh, uh, create reckoning moments. And so uh, we are very concerned about that part of it. And so that's that's what drives us to be allocating capital in what we think it's going to be the next growth and value uh, industries that will be leading the market in the next uh, five to 10 years even. Great. Yeah. And to your point of like, you know, what could prove your thesis wrong here? And that sort of that return to really robust, sustainable economic growth, um, you know, being a realist looking at the, the landscape, you know, we just shot, well, worldwide, tens of trillions in monetary and fiscal stimulus over the past year and a half in the U.S. alone, over 10 million. And we're already seeing uh, the economy slow again. Right. Um, so, you know, it doesn't give you a lot of confidence that, that we're just sort of going to magically start ramping back up to robust, sustainable economic growth. Um, all right. Great uh, parade of, of, of reasons there um, for you know, why things are looking so bright for, for the metals. Um, I want to walk through just through a couple of charts to make sure that folks get to see some of these visuals, Tavi, and please feel free to expound in any way you want to on them. Um, and I'm going to progress from the metals then to the miners. Um, uh, there have been charts circulating recently, and I think you guys have your own version here of the price action of gold. And it really does look to be, you know, kind of the classic cup and handle, right? Which is sort of a classic technical analyst formation where once that handle is completed, uh, then you typically have a very strong run to the upside. And so I think people are looking at that and thinking, wow, okay, this could be the right time to, to get into the trade because that cup and handle formation is just about done. I see you nodding here, Tavi, but, but true, do you guys sort of recognize that same uh, pattern? Yes, I, I think that what's happening with gold in terms of the, well, the, tech, the, the technical analysis uh, is part of what we looked as well, but certainly not the priority of our investment process. Uh, I like what you're saying as well. I think that the gold does have that uh, cup and handle formation. Uh, it does also have a double bottom on the gold relative to money supply, which is very interesting chart. Um, now, what I think it's it's happening now, which is uh, you know kind of goes along with the situation of the media calling gold to be a debt trade or so forth is it's pretty normal to see gold struggling after hitting new highs. We saw that in 1978, I think it was March of 1978, gold hit new highs, uh, which its prior highs were, I think in 1974, uh, after hitting those levels, gold went down about 15%. It looks just like a blip on the chart if you look at back from today. Uh, and then gold went off from there uh, all the way up to the 1980s or so. And it took a few decades until gold went up again above to its uh, new 
new highs, which was in 2008, I think it was January of 2008. Uh, gold went up for another two months after hitting those new levels. Uh, and then it, it got caught up on the global financial crisis, went down about 30%. A lot of technical analysis were telling you, you got to sell gold. And that was the time for you to be buying gold because it went on to another bull market all the way to 2011. Um, I think we're seeing something similar today where we saw gold reaching new highs in August of 2020. Uh, we went down about 20, uh, I would say 15% uh, or so since those highs. Uh, it's absolutely normal at a time when sentiment has never been so negative and everyone is focusing on crypto rather than looking at a hard asset that has been served as an alternative for the monetary system for so many uh, for, for so many centuries. And so uh, we like to, uh, you know, if there is a way to leverage up your thesis on gold, that way to do it without taking on debt uh, really is through buying gold and silver in the ground. So that's basically the, the thesis behind all this. But I, I love that chart on gold. I think that cup and handle is, is definitely going to be formalizing itself in the next, uh, in the next uh, uh, I would say in the next two to three years. I think we're going to see much higher gold prices that will also drive the value of those miners too. Right. So two things following off of that. One is if you look at the gold silver ratio, it's still favoring gold. So there's there's potentially a catch up moment here for silver, even at current gold prices. But obviously, if the gold price heads where you think it's going to go, Tavi, silver is going to go off to the races, correct? I think silver is the cheapest metal on earth. I'm on record for saying that a few times. I think uh, it's it's almost uh, ridiculous to be able to be buying silver sub $30 an ounce. Uh, some days even sub $25 an ounce is 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 a huge opportunity in our opinion. And so, you know, we we have, you know, you find a few projects that have a very large silver discoveries uh, you know, imagine the value of those if silver goes to $50 an ounce. That's not too, mu too much of, an, of a stretch. Uh, if you look at the, the history of what you just said, which is the gold and silver ratio, that is at about 70, 70 or so, I would say 75 or 74, uh, depending on the day. Um, and, you know, when you looked at that throughout history, taking out the, what we saw in, in, in March of 2020, which was uh, I would say perhaps a, a different period. Uh, you know, those are times that are very unique uh, in terms of the the timing for you to be allocating capital towards silver. Uh, I think that, that if there was ever a time again to be allocating capital in silver, that time is today. Uh, and so uh, we are very focused on that. And in regards to the supply side of silver is also very interesting because silver falls into not only the monetary metal aspect of it, uh, of, of a trade, but also into this green revolution situation where it really fits into as a metal that may serve as uh, a supply to, uh, to a lot of the developments in the electrification period that we may see in the following years, which falls into the fiscal agenda uh, and so forth. And so uh, we think that, you know, silver is, 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 is a very interesting play uh, and something that we're really long, uh, we have a very large exposure in our, in our portfolio today as well. Great. And just for the folks watching who may not be aware of this, there are actually very few pure play silver mines out there. Silver largely is a byproduct of other mining. So if you want more silver out of the ground, it's, it's harder to just say, oh, I'm going to go find a big silver deposit. You have to kind of get it through these other types of, of mining activities. All right. So where I was headed with this, Tavi, is we just talked about how um, uh, both technically and fundamentally, 
uh, we can you know, make a really good case for higher prices for gold, uh, maybe even you know, more extreme appreciation for silver as it catches up, right? Now you have a chart here that shows that um, uh, you calculate given the current gold price, which is around 1850, 1860 uh, dollars an ounce, that um, just looking at historic valuation um, relationships, the miners should be about 61% higher, valued at 61% higher than they are today. You're nodding here again, right? So there already is an optionality there of just, or an arbitrage there of like, they just seem relatively undervalued to the metal itself, correct? That That's right. I, I think the chart you're referring to is the one that looks at the monthly price of gold, which is already above the levels again, uh, after the sell-off that we saw recently, it's it's actually above the levels that we saw in the peak of 2011. And if we just apply the same idea, the miners are going to go back to retest the 2011 highs. That that really implies a 60 plus percent return from here. Obviously, we think that given the risk and the leverage to the gold and silver price, uh, we think the miners are going to go much higher. And on top of it, the fundamental story is nowhere close to where it was back in 2011. It's significantly better. Uh, to what Kevin was talking about, about the gray rotation and this prioritization to profitability, well, if there is one profitable place to be invested in, that's the mining space in the, in the precious metals and base metals. Basically, most of commodity companies are in that space of profitability. So uh, we think that that's, uh, you know, that, that's a big part of it. I think the, the, the miners could potentially become the new growth stocks of the next 10 years or so. Uh, and so that's why we like to be taking up risk here and, and go into a more illiquid and perhaps more of a deep value opportunity uh, where we think the liquidity is going to come in uh, to where uh, our investments are today. So uh, there's certainly a need for exploration. There's certainly a need for developments of mines. Uh, and with gold and silver prices going higher, in our opinion, uh, regardless if it is through real rates or further disorder in the monetary and fiscal side or further amounts of leverage in the system, uh, we think that that's going to be driving tangible assets higher and at some point will drive also liquidity to the miners. So miners are our favorite industry right now to be, to be long at this point. Great. And, and you're doing a great job of helping me kind of put the bow on this that I'm trying to tie here. And Kevin, we're coming back to you in just a moment, buddy. So hang in there. Um, so we talked about how um, really good argument to be made that that uh, the metals prices are going to go higher. Um, we're talking about that even just at current prices, the miners are undervalued and should you know deserve to increase by over 60% just based on 2011 comparisons. Then to the point you just made there, Tommy, the industry has really cleaned itself up from 2011. So we should expect a better, uh, you know, relative uh, performance out of them. And just very quickly, uh, you or maybe it was Kevin talked about how cash flows for this industry are at multi-decade highs. Um, equity and debt issuances are at multi-decade lows. So they're not getting into trouble with leverage. They're not diluting their shareholder base. Um, and the M&A cycle is like just beginning to turn up. And that's really what makes this sector come alive is when the big players come in and start buying up the, the smaller players. That's where you can get these sort of tremendous returns in a short period of time. I see you yeah. nodding here. So two things. Um, hopefully, we've made a really good case uh, for both owning the metals and the miners. If folks haven't seen the interview, uh, sorry, the bonus uh, presentation that Jeff Clark gave for this audience, um, go to wealthion.com slash Jeff. 
Yeah, I'm pretty, no, so uh, yeah, wealthion.com, sorry, wealthion.com slash Jeff. And you'll see the presentation that he recently gave at the New Orleans Investment Conference where he goes through um, basically his top picks for the companies that he thinks could perform the best from here, uh, given current circumstances. So that's a good opportunity for you know looking to an expert's pick list on existing publicly traded companies. All right, Natavi, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you've mentioned here kind of briefly, but you guys are doing something at Crescat kind of based on this thesis of gold in the ground is one of the best investments you can think about right now. What exactly have you put together there for investors? Well, thanks for the opportunity to discuss that. By the way, uh, I'll say hi to uh, to Jeff Clark. He's a very nice guy and very smart investor. Uh, so uh, I, it's a pleasure to be uh, to be uh, uh, to uh, to be friends with him as well. Um, I would say that look, uh, it really starts from the optionality from the macro environment. Number one, the number two part. It's it's what we think the majors are going to be needing in the following years as far as new projects to replenish their production lines. And so uh, we uh, really partnered with Quentin Haney. Quint, for people that don't know, Quentin Haney was the guy who was behind the Fosterville discovery, uh, which uh, he was really imperative at, at, at designing the drill hole for that. Uh, and so he is uh, has partnered with Crescat to really look for the new what we call the discovery age. We're going we want to be uh, involved with all the new discoveries of gold and silver of the next few years. And so we've had finance over 90 companies in the space, uh, some base metals, too, but mostly precious metals. Uh, we try to find silver names as well, given our, our bullishness in the space. Uh, but uh, it really is through a, a geographic focus of different parts of the world that we think will serve uh, some of those world-class discoveries. It's starting from Canada, from uh, you know the Golden Triangle, Yukon, or uh, Newfoundland, uh, all the way down to the U.S. and Nevada. Uh, Alaska as well is, is a place where we have a lot of investments in Mexico uh, is, is, is another place. But we also have a lot of investments in Finland, uh, which we think that there are quite a lot of opportunities in that space. Australia, uh, we avoid places like Africa and you know uh, China, Russia, and some other uh, states that perhaps uh, uh, you know we, we, we may have issues with in terms of jurisdiction risk. Uh, and so uh, we, we like to stay in, in this kind of top 10 uh, Fraser Institution, uh, I would say, jurisdictions where uh, we can really navigate and, and create value. Um, the, the whole point is to find uh, real good properties that have statistically good drill results or e even uh, you know the high probability of of allowing those companies to uh, to really explore in a very aggressive way, giving them enough capital and allowing us to take a stake between you know two percent all the way up to twenty percent stake in those companies or nineteen point nine percent, and having really an activist play where we can help them not only to tell the story but also. Uh, to really uh, drive value as far as the decisions in regards to exploration and how the projects should go about. And, and Quentin is, is really a huge part of that. And he's the person who really helps us to, uh, to navigate that part of the state of the, of, of the space. So it's, it comes out from a lot of different angles. It's, it's from a macro thesis that we uh, really drove us to, to start looking at this industry and this part of the industry is through Kevin's uh, investment process of creating quant models and trying to quantify, you know, this is something Kevin mostly is working even more than I do in regards to 
quantify and systematize in what we call the Lasson curve. I'm, I'm sure some of your uh, your viewers know what that means, and and try to identify what is the full value of a company can reach uh, reach uh, at the peak of the Lasson curve in the discovery phase allows us to position ourselves and size those positions accordingly, and also exit from those positions at the moments that we think that we should be. And so uh, all those are different parts of our investment process that I think uh, are coming along together in a very ni very nicely. Uh, we launched this fund in August of 2020, have done very well so far. Uh, and our goal is to be the fastest horse in the industry and really drive a lot of value in the space. Great. Okay. Um, so real quick, right before I get to my last question, a quick little um, correction. Uh, the URL I gave earlier for the video, there really are there are two videos that we've done recently with Jeff Clark. Uh, you should watch both. Uh, the one I mentioned, wealthion.com slash Jeff are Jeff's deep value picks. Um, these are publicly traded stocks that uh, uh, he thinks are you know sufficient for anybody who's thinking of investing in the precious metal space to, uh, to look at closely. Then at wealthion.com slash Clark, uh, those are Jeff's sort of highly speculative uh, picks, the ones that he thinks have the biggest upside potential. But of course, for the higher potential return, there's higher risk that comes along with it. So it's, it's not for everybody. It's really for people just with discretionary capital who you know are not afraid of losing it if those bets go wrong. But it's those are the companies that Jeff feels the most optimistic about their long-term prospects. So those are the two URLs to go to. Um, all right, as we uh, as we try to land the plane here, guys, um, Tavi, I'll bring it back to you real quick. What what counsel would you offer to today's prudent investor? You know, this this audience that's watching, they're people that are working hard to build wealth to create a uh, you know safe financial future, a prosperous financial future for their families. Um, they they're worried about the overvaluations in the general market that you guys have talked about. They don't want to become roadkill if there's a major market correction coming down the pipe. Um, you guys have done, I think, a wonderful job of making the case for hard assets as the place to put your capital. Beyond what we've already talked about here, is there any other potential um, bits of advice or direction you'd give them? And, and maybe I should ask you to respond to this. I found a recent interview you guys gave where the conclusion was short the Chinese yuan, short overvalued US mega cap growth stocks short the S&P 500 index, go long precious metals. Um, is that the advice you'd still offer? Would you edit it? Would you add to it? No, we, we like to have a basket of asymmetric bets in our portfolio. And I like to, I would say the biggest risk to the market today, in our opinion, comes from the inflationary forces. I think there's really three pillars that are moving along here in a very significant way. It starts from this, the, this wealth transfer from the government to the people that are driving inflationary forces in a big way. The second one is what Kevin kind of touched on it, which was the wages and salaries growth, which is a secular shift in our opinion that would drive inflation too. The third one is the monetary debasement that we're seeing in the fiscal disorder, uh, which is driving also the Federal Reserve to be uh, buying those, uh, those treasuries in order to drive or suppress interest rates over time. And, and even though we may see uh, an exit from the, that strategy for the short term, ultimately, I think we're going to go back there again. And so, and the fourth one has to do with you kind of touch, which is China, the deglobalization patterns we're seeing, which started in our opinion back in 2016, are uh, really uh, still going uh, uh, very strongly in our opinion. And we think that that's going to continue to be the fourth pillar of inflation of adding uh, to this uh, pressure of consumer prices to rise. 
we think that China is a credit bubble. So if I would point out to an issue globally as far as a credit bubble outside of other developed economies, I would say the biggest one in our opinion that is a risk is China. We think China is a massive credit bubble, a banking, uh, I, think, uh, I think we may see a banking crisis coming out of China. And how do you play that? In our opinion, one of the ways is to be short the yuan. So we like to be not only long gold, but long gold relative to the most overvalued currencies in the world. Uh, in our opinion, that is the Chinese yuan and the Hong Kong dollar. Uh, I don't think that those uh, the markets are really pricing in on the implied volatility of those derivatives uh, what it could potentially happen with those uh, currencies in case we do have a currency and banking crisis unfolding in that in those two countries. Uh, I'm referring to China and Hong Kong. So I would say those are the, the biggest things. Uh, uh, Kevin uh, touched on valuations. I think that that's a huge deal for, for investors. Uh, there's, you know, uh, we've had a, this, this long period of, uh, of, of, I would say, over 10 years or so where uh, the prioritization of top line growth and no one looking at fundamental analysis I think fundamental analysis is going to be the next, uh, it's, it's going to come back strongly and it's going to be uh, what we're really going to be uh, helping folks to be selecting securities for the next uh, years or so. And so I, I would suggest uh, uh, most of the investors to be uh, looking out for the uh, the ways that we have that have worked in the past from software companies, technology sector as a whole, uh, and shifting away from that, perhaps looking at uh, natural resource companies that maybe offer a different type of investment with much higher profitability profile uh, than those other businesses and better balance sheet, depending on, on, on the company as well. So those are the biggest risks. Now, on one more that I think it's it's a large one that I alluded to uh, earlier is the interest rate risk, is, is the cost of capital risk. And how do you think about that? Um, how do you think about loan duration assets? I think those are all going to be questions and opportunities in the markets for the following years. By the way, this issue with 10-year yields rising is not going to be, in our opinion, just a problem in the U.S. We think it's going to happen globally, especially among developed economies. So uh, it's something that we're watching as another uh, macro play. And I've said this before, too. We've seen a domino effect. We're seeing uh, it started with lumber prices, and then we saw issues with energy prices starting to rise. Uh, and then we saw lead, zinc coal prices beginning to rise too. Uh, and that is starting to uh, uh, impact uh, things like ammonia prices. And now uh, agricultural commodities, we think, are the next ones to start moving. That's another opportunity that we think that will be uh, driving the inflationary thesis uh, in the next uh, uh, year or so, I would say the next 12 months or so, uh, through food prices continue to rise and fitting into this inflationary problem. So uh, sorry, I went long a little bit, but those are the, the I would say the, the biggest uh, takeaways from, from this interview or from at least uh, the things that I'm concerned about on the economy for the next, uh, uh, the next uh, three years or so. Excellent. Well, thanks for that wrap up. And um, so Tavi, I know that you're active on Twitter. Can you share your Twitter handle for folks that would like to follow you? At Tavi Costa. Great. All right. Now, Kevin, we're coming to you. If you could share your Twitter handle, and then if you have anything that you wanted to add uh, to Tavi's uh, parting comments there, that'd be great. Sure. I'm at, I'm at Crescat Kevin. So C-R-E-S-C-A-T and then Kevin, at Crescat Kevin. Um, I think Tavi did a great job of, of summing everything up. There is a, you know, a lot more on the commodity 
long side of the market that we are bullish on today. It's not just precious metals. We love precious metals. Don't don't uh, don't forget that. But uh, but there's a lot of other energy commodities, um, food commodities, fertilizer. Uh, you know, um, we like steel. We like we like um, we like. Um, Anyway, it, it's, a, it's a whole host of commodities in the portfolio today, um, forest products, and uh, you know, even coal. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for, uh, for some of the old uh, economy um, energy you know, source, sources today. Um, as we approach winter here, um, and uh, with, with oil and gas prices rising, uh, this is the setup for, uh, for for inflation to feed through to a number of commodities, like like Tavi said, it's a domino effect. So uh, we're involved with um, a lot here at Crestcat. Our global macro strategy, our long short strategy, has a lot um, more to add on those other commodity fronts, as well as our large cap. Um, but the precious metals fund is is just focused on the precious metals. So that's what what's going on here. Okay, great. And so if folks want to actually learn more about your organization, it's Crestcat.net. That's Correct. Right. All right, guys. Can't thank you enough for taking so much time with me here today. It was a fascinating conversation, wonderful analysis. Um, thank you for this interview, but also just thank you so much for the phenomenal charts and insights that you guys publish on such a regular basis. Well, thanks for having me. Thank us. you, Adam. Yeah, we appreciate that. All right, as we do every week, we're going to hear from Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors. We've got John Loder and Mike Preston. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello, Adam. Good to be with you. Nice to see you, Adam. Great to see you guys. All right. Well, let's dive right in. So, guys, as I was listening to Kevin and Tavi go through their whole rationale for the great rotation, I was just thinking you guys must have been standing up in your chairs and applauding. Uh, it seemed like they were just, you know, enumerating the mission uh, for New Harbor, your guys' firm. And then as they sort of went through, you know, hard assets and the specific different commodity spaces, and then particularly gold and the miners. It was literally like they guys they were just ticking off your guys's investment playbook. So, John, um, what did you take away from the conversation? Yeah, Adam, I, I thought it was a great conversation. We, we uh, we've been followers of of Crestcat's work uh, for quite a while. They put out some really um, really lucid charts uh, that are all data backed, and we love it when folks um, instead of kind of speaking their beliefs and perhaps even their egos and and uh, you know opinions, they they speak starting from data. And that's what the folks there at Crestcat do. You know, um, look, I mean, they painted many of the pictures that we've talked about uh, with you, Adam, uh, both from, from us and, and from other guests you've had on. Um, you know, the, um, the contrast between certain areas of the market couldn't be more great. They talked about the historical undervaluation of commodities to the broad stock market. They talked about the historical undervaluation of even precious metals, and especially precious metal mining companies relative to even commodities themselves. So these dramatic um, uh, uh, disjoints in the market and um, the likely specter of, of a regime change uh, fueled in no small part by uh, finally an inflationary impulse that looks like it's, it's for real. Um, you know, one, one thing that you know, we've, we've obviously spoken the virtues of gold mining stocks as, as one of the very few areas of the stock market that look attractive to us from a fundamental standpoint, in, they enumerated at great length, you know, some of the fundamental metrics there, the, the free cash flow, 
the uh, low debt uh, you know, um, burdens that these companies have right now. Ironically, a, a class of stocks that have historically been viewed as reckless allocators of capital have become the poster children for responsibility. Um, you know, the debt to uh, the, the, the earnings to debt coverage of, of the average gold mining stock is better than the average S&P stock right now. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was a really interesting stat when, when Tavi, you know, reminded us that, you know, something like 70 or 75 percent of the, the major gold mining companies are, are very profitable right now. Contrast that with almost 70 percent of the Russell 3000 growth index right now are losing <laughs> yeah. money. So the things that have done well in these last bunch of years um, without really any fundamental data supporting that or justifying that. Um, we think that we, we agree with them. There's, there's bound to be a regime change here and, and uh, gravity will, will kick back in. Yeah. And on that gravity part, um, Mike, let me go over to you here. But, uh, you know, the, the whole premise there underlying Crescott's um, framework is that uh, spiking inflation and, and, you know, the mounting debt burden that we have here uh, are going to force uh, interest rates up. You know, spiking inflation is going to force the, uh, the, the Fed's hands there. And um, uh, that's going to, you know, an increase in interest rates is going to increase the cost of capital. And, you know, I talked with those guys about, you know, the implication that this has for valuations. But just mathematically, as the cost of capital goes up, you know, generally asset prices have to come down. And as we've talked about many weeks on this program, um, so many financial assets right now are, are priced at valuations that we've never seen before in history. They're just unbelievably deformed above their historical norms. Um, you guys still remain very concerned about sort of the size of the air pocket from where those prices are today to where they could be, right, in terms of sort of a, a general market reckoning that may lie ahead? Yeah, Adam, I've got a few words to say about that. But yeah, I mean, this game of lowering interest rates to try to keep asset prices high has been going on now for over two decades. Um, most people probably remember in the late 90s, Alan Greenspan pushed rates quite a bit lower than his uh, historically normal uh, on mortgages or in the, in the bond market in general, you know, by buying bonds and open market uh, operations and driving down interest rates. The purpose of that was to encourage spending, to encourage refinancing of one's home, to encourage taking equity out of one's home, and then spending it like it's real money. Well, it is real money. And it, it, you know, it caused real stimulus in the economy. Some would say it even caused an overshoot. It's part of what may have caused this spectacular overshoot in a handful of tech stocks in 1999 and created the tech bubble. You know, of course, that bubble burst and, and we reinflated that bubble, created the housing bubble. And when that burst, well, it's a whole different regime that we're in now with multiple rounds of quantitative easing. So it, it certainly feels like the most investors in the world think that this can go on forever, that rates can stay at zero or even go negative, and that reality doesn't matter anymore. And we, we don't think that's true. We think a time is coming, probably sooner than later, where the bill is going to come to be paid for all of this. We've seen many years of, uh, of, of measures of euphoria that have basically um, floored us and they're beyond belief and yet they continue and sometimes even get more extreme from there. So look, there's no free lunch. This has been tried before, printing money, you know, creating this, this sense of prosperity that goes on forever. It's been tried before. There's, there's, there's evidence of that, of course, even back in the Roman empire. Um, it, 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 it will end. And, and the problem is we don't know when, and it, 
tends to happen slowly compared to one's lifetime. So it can feel interminably hard to be out of the bubble or not be not participating. We're warning over and over again that we think that when this bubble bursts and it will burst, it's going to be very painful. It's going to hurt a lot of people. But maybe what we didn't realize is how much it hurts to watch others party while you're not. So that's 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 why we call this a you know psychological war that's going on. This um, this 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 policy of printing money is just inherently wrong and, and and it's difficult to navigate. So it's only a matter of time though before things start to change. Certainly interest rates going up would burst this bubble. We're looking at commodities like John mentioned that uh, Kevin and Tavi talked about. Commodities are starting to perform well, break out of their chart consolidations. Gold in particular is breaking out of a over a year and a half uh, weekly consolidation triangle to the upside. And uh, we think that gold, silver, and miners could do great from here. As far as equity markets, we would stay out of equity markets for the most part. We're at most about 10% exposed because we, we still think that the equity markets will have substantial losses from these levels whenever they happen. Great, thanks. And um, yeah, I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with Tavi there near the end about the um, extreme constellation of positive factors coming together for the precious metals. Um, and Mike, you just mentioned that that you know gold and the miners are beginning to perform here. Um, you know, gold was down in the mid 1700s. Uh, you know, only about a month or so ago. Now it's in the you know mid 16, uh, 1800s. It's it's trying to get uh, you know up to the higher end at, at this point. Um, and we're beginning to see the miners, you know, really begin to to move here. But you know, um, from the type of future that the guys at Crescat see coming, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I, I want to hear your answer to this, Mike. But you know, I would say the sense is sort of like if we're talking about a, a new bull market for the metals and the miners, that we may be like literally, you know, in the in the middle of the first inning. Like we're still really early on in this game, and the gains, uh, potentially the great gains, is that great rotation happens because that is a ton of capital, you know, sitting in these super high priced growth companies that, you know, many of which have no profits, as John said earlier, um, if, if even a small portion of that tries to go into commodities, let alone into the small uh, gold and the tiny silver markets, um, you know, it could literally overwhelm them and send the prices of the metals to the moon, which would send the prices of the miners themselves, particularly the smaller ones, like into the next solar system. So Mike, what do you think? Where, where are we in this potential inning of, of uh, a new bull market for the metals? Well, predictions are always dangerous, right? So, but um, based on what we've seen in long-term chart patterns, I'm talking about multi-year chart patterns. I'm looking at a 20-year monthly chart of gold. It's in its second high-level consolidation, this triangle that goes back to August of 20. We've now definitively broken slightly out to the upside from this triangle after testing the downside two times over the last six months. We've broken out, sentiment is still pretty negative in the sector. Um, just pure technical analysis would lead you to around a $2,500 price target on gold by probably mid next year. That's a guess based on the chart. Obviously no one knows the future. It also happens to agree with what I think um, another one of your guests talks about quite a, quite a lot, David Hunter. I think he said the same thing. Based on chart patterns, we agree. That's what it looks like. We're starting to break out. It should happen relatively quickly. These triangle patterns, once they break, tend to do that. 
2,500 maybe is what it looks like, but but who knows? I mean, things can get crazy. Who would have thought that Bitcoin would go from 500 to 60,000? I mean, when there's when there's uh, hot money and hysteria involved, anything can happen. And, and clearly, if people start to get worried about runaway inflation, you know, taking into account how deranged the Fed has been the last 10 years, um, yeah, we could, we could see much higher prices. But I'd prefer to talk about what I would see near term, and that would be maybe 2,500. Okay, okay. Well, and the reason why I'm, I'm sort of digging into this is, is not so much to say, hey, everybody run out and buy miners. I think we've spent a lot of time on this podcast making the case for why they've got a good future ahead of them. But it's really for any thesis you have where if there's an asset class you think is going to be well positioned for what's coming, um, the important thing is you have to build a position in advance of that capital transfer that you expect. Because once it's underway, you can very quickly get caught chasing prices. And, and just in the miners, um, you know, we'd had Jeff Clark on this program, you know, over the past two months or so, where he's been giving some recommendations on uh, mining companies he liked. And those miners have moved a fair amount. I mean, a number of them have moved 40 to 90% since then. And there's a lot of people that are kicking themselves because they, they waited and they didn't get in. And then the, the miners moved on them. Now, as I said, I personally think that we're still in early days here. But, um, you know, when those things tend to move, they tend to move fast and, and similar with other sectors in the hard asset space. So the only point I want to underscore here is that if, if people are thinking about, you know, shifting capital in advance of this great rotation. Um, it, it's something you actually have to do before it happens, because otherwise you can, you know, again, be trying to play catch up, like I mentioned. Um, all right, John, uh, coming back to you, just to kind of put a bow on things here. Um, you know, Mike mentioned the psychological warfare. Um, we've talked about the opportunity, we think, coming ahead based upon the talk here with Crescott. Um, any sort of parting advice here for viewers, um, particularly sort of on the, the psychological side in terms of, um, you know, helping people, people, you deal with people every day who are fretting about the fact that today's, you know, crazy asset prices just continue to go higher. They're dealing with FOMO. They're dealing with the fear of, of maybe entering a position, but, but being the greatest fool who buys in right before a big market correction. Um, what, what can you tell people that might be helpful in helping them wrestle with their emotions here? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, frankly, the most important thing we can probably try to talk about today, because that is the single biggest factor we, we think that can uh, create success or failure, but more importantly, create peace of mind, which is, you know, most of our clients are, are people that want to live their lives, not just look at their, their account statements. Before I pivot to that, I did want to touch one thing on, on the gold miners, um, you know, because one thing that, that Tavi pointed out, which is something we've been saying for a long time, if you look at the, the gold mining stocks in terms of their historical valuation relative to the price of metal itself, they're tremendously undervalued relative to the price of metal uh, based upon historical standards. Tavi threw out a, you know, a, a metric of 61% uh, undervalued, uh, even if gold prices didn't rise from where they are today. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but he was basing that off of uh, the industry's relative position to gold price back in 2011. And yes. you know, I chimed into this say, that's when that industry still had a lot of cleaning up to do. Absolutely. So if you factor in the fact that it's a much healthier industry right now, that 61% yeah. is probably a, a big understatement. Absolutely. And this, this gets into, the reason I want to raise it, because it does get into psychology, because you know fundamentals don't matter until they do, right? Um, things that are slam dunk obvious things won't move until 
investors recognize. And they usually do so in mass in a herd like fashion. Um, and that's to your point, Adam, about you got to be ahead of that herd, even if it's painful to be early. Um, um, but to the point of the psychological torture chamber, I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's alive and well. And, you know, look, I mean, the, the, the agonizing part about this is because when you live it, and I'm speaking from the standpoint of who is a client of my own firm, um, I'm, a, I'm a family guy, I've got a family to support, and, you know, I have my own money position like we have our clients. Um, and, and I understand what it feels like. Um, but I also understand um, from the perspective of history, um, you know, how crazy things can be and, and how uh, what is right can feel so wrong and what is wrong can feel so right. And when you're living in the day-to-day -day of it, it becomes agonizing. And I, we understand that. Um, but you can go back in history and to episodes that were far less extremely overvalued than today, and the same exact thing was alive and present, the tech bubble. In the instant there, it felt horrible. In, in hindsight, we can go back and look at that and say, yeah, it was a bubble. It was a crazy bubble. The housing bubble. We can go back and easily say, yeah, it was crazy. But in the moment, I can remember distinctly in late 2007, I was getting calls from people literally off the street saying, I've been in the cash since, since the tech bubble collapsed. I want to get in the stock market now. And I said, I will not take you on as a client to do that right now. If you sat in cash from the, the, the you know, point being is psychology is what causes these things. And, and it's almost um, uh, uncontrollable psychology. And this is not to fault anybody. This is human nature. And there are all, all kinds of factors conspiring to turn up the volume to maximum deafening noise right now. And for, frankly, for the last bunch of years, chief among them, central banks who have not been bashful about saying, hey, we have, messed with interest rates to, to force people to take on risk that they don't, they don't otherwise want to take on. That's, that's manipulation in the grandest sorts. All right. Well, it's great that we have you guys on this program every week to kind of help remind people of that because it can be super hard to resist the siren songs or the, the midnight fears uh, you know, that our, our animal brains you know, are, are, are hitting us with all the time around this. Um, all right. And, and I just want to sort of emphasize what you said there, John, too. I am, um, folks may have seen the interview that I, I posted earlier this week uh, with, uh, you know, a market bull who's, who's on CNBC. Um, and so get an interview her. And then last night I went out to dinner with seven fund managers and um, really all those people uh, said, you know what, valuations don't matter. Um, and it's, it's that very much you mentioned sort of the dot-com bubble. You know, I remember hearing similar things back then. Um, and to a person, they, they all basically say, look, they don't matter and nobody understands them anymore. Um, but these people have to be in this market. It's their job. They have capital. They have to deploy it. So it's kind of like the Chuck Prince quote. They are dancing while the music's playing. And I, you know, I asked them, I said, look, are you, do you guys have a fear in the back of your mind that you're going to wake up one day and the music stopped and you're all going to scramble for chairs and there's going to be none left? And they kind of said, kind of, but, you know, in the interim, this is what I get paid to do, right? Um, and just as an example, you know, I, I, uh, I tossed out Rivian there as just, you know, for me, a classic example of, of kind of the ridiculous overvaluation that's going on there right now. And for folks that aren't familiar, Rivian is an electric truck manufacturer, just IPO'd. Uh, I think its its revenues to date are under a million dollars, and yet the company is valued somewhere around 130 billion or something like that, uh, making it the 
think the fifth largest automaker in the world um, at this point, even though it, it really hasn't shipped any trucks yet to date. And to a person, you know, every one of these fund managers says, we, have, we, we don't understand it. We have no clue why it's got that valuation, but we don't understand Tesla's valuation either, but we own it and we own it because it's going up. And it's that classic mentality that, you know, after a bubble, you look back at and say, of course, that was ridiculous, right? That was magical thinking. But right now, those are the guys, I mean, collectively around that table, uh, those seven fund managers I had dinner with last night controlled about a hundred billion in assets under management. So, you know, they're actually moving prices with that much capital. Um, but to hear it from the horse's mouth that they, they really don't worry about valuations, you know, just made me even more, um, I would say sort of committed or convicted to, you know, what Mike said earlier, which is, you know, valuations don't matter until they do. And then when they do, you know, if you're on the wrong side of that repricing, it's going to get very, very ugly. All right. So with that said, guys, um, for those watching folks, um, don't forget to go get download the, the free Crescent Capital research letter. You can do that at wealthion.com slash Crescent. It's got all the charts that we walked through in today's discussion, plus a lot more uh, very valuable, very, very insightful commentary. Um, and uh, as I always remind folks, if you want to see other great guests on this program, like the guys from Crescent, and you want to have a voice in who I bring on in the future, just follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. And guys, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but you know, every so often uh, when I get bored, uh, most evenings I do a little music trivia on that Twitter feed. Uh, so if you're a music fan, you want to chime in, uh, feel free to do so. But you might now be competing against the likes of John Hussman or Stephanie Pomboy, who are pretty active in the mix now. And, and they're pretty good. So you got some stiff competition there, folks. Um, all right, folks. And then last, um, please help support this channel in reaching more viewers uh, by hitting that like button and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And uh, no matter what happens from here, folks, we'll be tracking it together. Guys, I'll see you next week. Everybody else, thanks for watching. See you soon, Adam. Thanks. Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. 
All the details on this are clearly provided on the WealthyOn.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.